This episode of 11 Point Collar is brought to you by Jim Henson the Biography and Weirdos Like You. It's 11 Point Collar, hosted by J.D. Frog Scout Hansel. Hi-ho, Muppet fans, and welcome to the first day of 10 Days of Jim and Frank. That's right, for the next week and a half, from May 16th to the 25th to be specific, we'll be celebrating the partnership between Jim Henson and Frank Oz with something new each day. To me, it seems like there's no better way to kick off the event than with an interview with the ultimate Henson historian who knows Jim Henson's life better than anyone else, FrogFan76. But seriously, folks, I asked biographer Brian J. Jones if he'd be willing to do an interview for the podcast, and of course, he was, because he's awesome like that. We ended up getting along pretty well, I think, and uh, found out that we're actually both Marylanders, so he's just a few counties over. Fun fact. Well, I'll have more info on how you can be involved in 10 Days of Jim and Frank at the end of the show, but for now, here's my interview with the author of Jim Henson, the biography, Brian J. Jones. I am now joined by Brian J. Jones, occasionally referred to by some as Brian J. Jonas Brothers, uh, who is the New York Times best-selling biographer behind Jim Henson, The Biography. This book might have had more impact on the Muppet Wiki and on the way people see Jim Henson than any other work of media. I know I've greatly enjoyed learning vast amounts of new information about Jim Henson that I never thought would have even been knowable, so this book means a lot to me, and that's why it's a huge thrill for me to welcome to the show Brian J. Jones. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, even though it's early on a Saturday. <laughs> Is 11 a.m. that for a Saturday, I guess? For a Saturday. So, if I may, I'm going to open with Mr. Generic question before we get into, get into the more specific and interesting ones. Is okay, right? I'll give you Mr. Generic answer if I can. Okay, so uh, what made you want to write your book on Jim Henson? First of all, when you're a biographer and you have to live with the subject you're going to be writing about for, you know, three to five years, sometimes more... Um, you know, it's one of those things you have to be, you have to be sure, first of all, that you're, you're committed. Um, my first book was about Washington Irving, who, as I found out as I did this, is a great guy. So a great guy to live with for seven years as I did that one. And Jim, you know, is the same way. Another great subject. He really is the, the kind of guy you think he is. You know, he's got his flaws, but really is a, a great guy. And you can't complain about watching the Muppet Show and calling it work. But I was um, sort of the first generation raised on Jim and the Muppets work because I was two when Sesame Street uh, debuted and I was nine when the Muppet Show premiered and, you know, saw all his movies in the theater. So, you know, Jim was one of those guys that was always, you know, always there for me. Uh, he w I didn't, you know, the generation four had to sort of wait for him to get there. My mother had told me she remembered seeing Rolf the Dog on the Jimmy Dean show, you know, back in the 60s, which, you know, when you, I was a kid, seemed like it was a million years ago. And I was like, no, you didn't, Mom. You know, there were no Muppets back then. Little did I know. Um, but, you know, so I was sort of the first generation that we got to call him ours from day one. So, you know, it was one of those guys I was always interested in. I, uh, I'm i not as good at, uh, as some of the Muppet fans of doing the random Muppet game. I know they do over on Muppet Wiki, Wiki and so on. But, um, you know, was was a big fan of the work. And there was a book that came out when I was about 13 called Of Muppets and Men that was all about the behind the scenes of the Muppet show. And I read that book until the cover almost fell off of it. I checked out of the library <laughs> and read that book constantly. And I was one of those, you know, nerdy kids, big surprise, that read all the credits in TV Guide and all of their, So I knew that the Muppets weren't magic. I knew there were people doing this. And I was fascinated by the whole behind the scenes thing. You know, I remember seeing the documentary on making of the Muppets. So I loved that kind of stuff. 
So I knew, you know, even as a 10-year-old and 11-year-old, so that there was a Jim Henson and a Frank Oz and that, you know, that there were people doing this, which I always thought was really cool, um, which I think is one of the reasons I ended up, you know, writing biographies because I love the way, you know, the magic works. I love the way people work on stuff. So when I got ready to do, uh, after I finished the Washington Irving book, and I was sort of kicking around trying to figure out my next subject would be, I came across Jim's Wikipedia page and was reading something on there uh, and, and thought, well, gee, I wonder where they got that, and went down to the bottom to look at the references. And people always say, well, no one ever cites anything on, on Wikipedia, but Muppet fans are actually really great about citing stuff. Like, they're really, great, they're really good at that. So I went down to the bottom and started looking, and all the books were his works, uh, you know, designs and doodles, and, and, you know, it's all about the work. There was nothing on Jim except for kids' bios. And I couldn't believe there hadn't been one because this was 2010 when I started looking. And so, or 2008 actually. And so I called my agent and I said, you know, is there somebody, is there a Robert Caro out there who's been, you know, right, you know, researching this for 20 years and we don't know about this? And so we started making calls and queries and emailing people and found out there hadn't been. And um, I got in touch with the Jim Henson Legacy, which at that time was the executive director was Arthur Devell who was Jim's publicist, and started a conversation with him. And Arthur, you know, and Arthur was great. Arthur got it immediately. He said, you know, this is really interesting, and, and you're right. You know, there's, there's people that, um, that have passed on. You know, Jerry Joel had recently died at that time, and Bernie Brillstein. So, you know, the people were starting to disappear who could tell these stories. So we, uh, so we, we you know, went through the legacy and started talking with the family. And it took a long time. You know, it took about two years to, to get the, you know, to know the family and get in so they could see I wasn't really up to shenanigans. And uh, and get to know them, and and then they it 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 was it was hot and cold, you know. For a while, it was you know you should, yes it, yes, and then it was no, then it was maybe, then it was no again, then it was yes. and it finally after about two years, we you know Lisa Henson was was fantastic, and all of the kids were great, and said you know we get it, we see what you're trying to do. I'd given them um, uh, sort of sample pages at that point because I said you know let me let me show you the way I would do this, and I went down to the Library of Congress and I pulled every article I could find on Jim when he was doing the Muppets here in DC. And and you know, a lot of little Virginia newspapers and little Maryland newspapers, places you don't normally find, you can find in the Library of Congress. And so I, you know, I put together every single article I could find on Jim. And he actually got a lot of ink back in, you know, 1955 when he was in high school. He was sort of the boy wonder on WRC and so on. And so I wrote sort of a mock-up chapter so they could see, you know, this is the way I would do this. And this is how I would use my sources. And if I've got quotes from Jim, I want him to tell the story as much as I can. I want this in people's voices. And after I gave that to him, I think that was when they saw, okay, we, we see the way you would do this. And, and that really sort of knocked it open at that point. And, uh, you know, they let me into their, into their private company archives. Because unlike a lot of figures, Jim's papers aren't held by a library or anything like that. They're privately owned. So you have to have their permission to be in their archives. And they gave me that permission, and they let me interview all of them, and they helped me get in contact, you know, with Frank Oz and Jerry Nelson, you know, and really put me in touch with a lot of the Muppet family. So, you know, having them on board was critical. If I could not get them, um, I was not going to do it. I really wanted them uh, involved in it. So that is a long roundabout way of saying that's why I wanted to do Jim. You know, just one of these guys that was always in my consciousness from the time I was two, and uh, you know, the guy, a, a guy, I just I really uh, admired and and really wanted to know more about. And that was the main thing when I started looking into Jim on Wikipedia and so on. Thought, geez, I can't believe there's nothing out there. I really wanted to know more about Jim. And they always say, uh, you know, you should write the book you want to read. Man, did I want to read about Jim Henson. That's Mr. Generic Answer. That's a generic answer. Yeah. Wow, big guy. Okay. <laughs> wow. So when this interview is released uh, in the second half of May, it will have been 
25 years since yeah. the passing of Jim Henson. So having done all the research that you have done, uh, what do you think it was about the way Jim's mind worked uh, and the way he viewed life that made him so unique and so lovable? Um, a lot of people said, you know, there wasn't an ounce of cynicism in, in Jim, which is which is really true. I mean, he there, one of the things I think that makes his work so genuine is that Jim really was genuine. He really, you know, he really was one of these guys who wanted to do good and wanted to make a difference and wanted things to be positive and didn't believe in, you know, you know, doing depressing work and doing, you know, let's 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 do let's do grim and gritty superheroes. You know, I mean, Jim probably wouldn't have ever done anything like that. You know, he really wanted the work to matter. Um, he wanted to make a difference. And you look at something like Fraggle Rock, where you know Jim went in and said to them, uh, "I want to do a, prog a project that will stop war." And you know, was sort of winking it, but really meant it. And and Mike Frith said, "You know, only Jim could have said that and and been sincere about it." Uh, and he was. And Fraggle Rock is really his worldview. You know, that's that's you know everybody getting along whether you mean to or not sometimes. So, so I really think you know the bit about there not being an ounce of cynicism in Jim is really true, and I think that is one of the things informing his work that that really makes it that that keeps it eternal, um, because Jim really wanted to appeal to the best in all of us, um, whether we were going to disappoint him in that or not, he didn't really care. Um, you know, he really was trying to appeal not to the baser instincts, but to our our higher our higher self, you know, our more positive self. And and I think people want to respond to that. They want to be happy. They want to have fun. They want to enjoy. And I think that's one of the reasons his work still uh, stands today. I mean, you watch a Sesame Street sketch from 1974. It's still fresh, funny, positive. You know, upbeat, fun to watch. I mean, none of that stuff dates because there's nothing. Uh, you know, ev everything about about being optimistic and positive having fun is timeless and that's really Jim's mentality. Right. But Jim Henson and Frank Oz, they seem to have pretty different, uh, at least different personalities if not mentalities. Yeah, I mean I think that's, you know, it's interesting because Jim's design sense, long before he'd even met Frank Oz, Jim, Jim's design sense, you know, was you look at Wilkins and Wonkins right. and it's, you know, it's tall and skinny and short and squatty and you look at the way later they designed, you know, Beaker and Bunsen Honeydew, tall and skinny, short and squatty, Ernie and Burke, tall and skinny, short and squatty. So Jim understood there was sort of humor inherent in those contrasts. Mm -hmm. uh, it showed up in his design sense, and it shows up in the way he interacts with somebody like Frank Oz, who is, you know, who is, uh, you know, very serious about puppetry. And, and you know, Jim was one of these guys that you know didn't wasn't embarrassed by being a puppeteer. You know, he got over the fact that you know when a teacher at the University of Maryland asked him, you know, is this something a grown man should be doing for a living? Jim finally came to terms with that and said, Yeah, it is. Frank Oz was never really comfortable with that. You know, he he was brought, somebody once said he's the greatest puppeteer in the world, and he fights it, man. Um, he doesn't fight it as much anymore, but back in the day, you know, he was very serious. Brian Henson would talk about how he would sort of stalk the halls where they were making the Muppet show and you had to get out of the way because here came Frank and we were going to do great art and, you know, and, and Oz, you know, Oz remembers that and he knows he did that. And, uh, but you know, he did take it very seriously. Only Frank Oz would write these long, lengthy, detailed backstories on characters he was going to perform and it was because he wanted to know at any given time, no matter what situation, exactly what was going through that character's head and right. how they would respond. And and for him, character always came first, and that's what really mattered to him. And for Jim, you know, Jim loved the design. He loved the character. I think for Jim, the characters really came first. And that mentality as well is one of those reasons they played off of each other so well. They both got the importance of character. Yeah, definitely. I've always been impressed with uh, the way that Frank was able to take a character like, say, Miss Piggy, who could easily be a very flat, 
one-dimensional character, and I think today we've seen her uh, become more of that in some ways, and he made the character so uh, layered and deep, and that's where the humor of the character came from. Yeah, you know, and, and, and Frank is, is like Jim Henson in a way, too. You know, he's, he's, he's really good about, you know, sharing credit, and I think he would also say, you know, people like Jerry Joel really got it. Um, and Jerry Joel, you know, was once explaining Miss Piggy, saying, the Muppets are a family. You know, that's always your ground rule. And Miss Piggy is hard because she almost stands outside of that. And he said, but if you, you know, if you make her too much of a bitch, she's not funny anymore. You know, so he understood there was a fine line. And that, you know, that sort of informed the performance as well. You know, Frank Oz really respected the fact that somebody like Jerry Joel could write him that, that stuff. And then, and then, you know, he was off to the races with it as well. I mean, they, both Jim and Frank would ad-lib a lot. But they always had great, especially when, when Jerry Joel came to play, they always had great source material to work with. Because Jerry's another guy that really got it that the characters are what mattered, that the interaction between the characters is what mattered. That's why, you know, the Muppet Show in the, in the early seasons doesn't quite come together because you had Jack Burns as head writer, and he really liked the, the you know, the, the vignettes, the little quick, quick sketches, whereas when Jerry Joel came in, he said, okay, let's step back, and let's concentrate on the way these characters relate and respond to each other. And again, that's sort of Jim and Frank's specialty. I see. So now I know why I care more about characters than anything else when I'm watching any work of media. <laughs> so, I must get it from those two. And I I must ask, was it at all intimidating talking to someone like Frank Oz, who had, he'd certainly come across as an intimidating figure to other Muppet performers in the past. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, <laughs> I don't want to sound too overly drunk, but I mean, I was scared to death the first time. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd been introduced to him through email and Arthur Nobel again, you know, gave me his email address, had, had talked with Oz even beforehand, you know, to kind of let him know what I was doing. And, and he was, you know, very skeptical on these, these sorts of things. He doesn't do a lot of this kind of stuff, doesn't supervise. And God, he was wonderful. I mean, I, you know, I knocked on the door of his apartment and I was really nervous. And, and uh, he opens the door and he's putting on his hat and he's like, let's, let's go eat. And, uh, and so we went to this diner around the corner from him that he loved. And, and, uh, and I had a bagel that I didn't eat because the entire time I was just, you know, scribbling notes frantically and furiously. Uh, and just listening to him talk. And uh, he would not let me record him. He was the only person I talked with that didn't want to be on tape. Um, and very typical Frank Oz, and, and I'm going to have to swear, and you can either edit or not be saying, I, I don't want this out on the fucking internet. I don't want it on the fucking internet. So, uh, so he wouldn't let me put him on digital tape. So I had to sit there the entire time with my yellow pads and just write as fast as I could in like this big scribbling hand so I could make sure I could read it later. And then uh, when I got done with him, I would go running across Central Park over to the New York Society Library. Uh, I know the librarian over there, and he would let me use one of their side offices, and I would immediately start like typing it into my computer as fast as I could so I didn't lose any of it. Um, so anyway, so you know that's but that's the way the first meeting with him was. I was really nervous about it, and I but and I really wanted to make sure I brought my game because there's video that if you watch uh, that's come out recently of Oz being interviewed in England, I think. And the guy asked him a question, and Oz is like, "Geez, boy, your research is terrible. Where did you get this?" And uh, and I didn't want to be that guy, you know. I mean, <laughs> I wanted to go in prepared, and so I had done a ton of research. I had you know pages and pages and pages of typed up questions ready to go. I did not want to be caught flat-footed and ever be sitting there going, "Uh, uh, uh," with him, you know. I really want to make sure he knew that I was taking this seriously, uh, you know, and that I wanted to, you know, that that I wanted to get down to business on this. And so, I mean. I never asked him for his autograph. I have no photos. I have nothing of the sort. Um, so the first time we met, it was in his apartment. And then I think after that, when you know when he knew I wasn't, you know, a, I mean, I'm a doofus, but I wasn't out there to be, a, you know, a goofball with this. The next time we met in his apartment, and then the third time we met in his apartment, and then we talked over the phone, and you know, and I could send him emails finally, and he would respond back. And he sends, as you can imagine, just the funniest emails ever. 
So, uh, so you know, it was really, it was really neat, sort of getting to pull that curtain back and really seeing, you know, what a softy he really can be uh, on these things, and why people do love the guy, even with as intimidating as he is, is because you know he wants to do good work, and that's one of the reasons he is the way he is, um, and you've really got to respect that. Definitely, and it is, and, and it is intimidating, um, but again, once you get in there, he, he's a kitten. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really hard to imagine that, but I guess I can see it. That that would make sense. That would explain a lot of his characters, but. Of course, he's also a rather, um, how do I put this? He tends to be pretty blunt. Absolutely. Were you ever worried uh, when you were writing this book that's about uh, someone like Jim Henson who's seen very much as uh, someone who does, if not children's entertainment, then certainly family entertainment, and then uh-huh. having uh, Frank saying some things that I would be afraid to repeat? <laughs> was, was that a concern for you at all? You know, it, it, it was, but I didn't worry about it because I thought, well, my editor will take care of that. So, so you know, after I was, you know, I would write up my notes and type them up and I would, and I, you know, I would leave, <laughs> I would leave all the F-bombs in because that's the way Oz talks. I mean, you, you read it in the book and that voice comes right off the page of you. You know, I mean, it, he, it, that, that's just the way he sounds. You can really hear him. So I left it all in. Yeah, and, I sent it to, and I sent it to my editor thinking, well, he'll knock this right on out. And, and, and it came back and it was still in there. And so I, you know, I called my editor and I said, are you, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, leave it in. It's great. You know, he's like, that's the way they talk. He's like, this is a, this is a grown up book. And, you know, kids, if they read it, they're not going to, they're not going to melt. So, you know, let's leave it in. That's the way he talked. It's terrific. And then, you know, by 2005, it seemed Frank was essentially done with performing Muppets, although he'd uh, clearly been doing less and less and less Muppet performing uh, throughout the late 80s and then throughout the 90s. And, mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that this was, uh, to some degree, uh, related to Henson's passing or just Jim wanted, or I mean, Frank wanted to move on to other things? Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't answer that authoritatively because I don't know. Um but I, you know, Jim, even towards, I'm sorry, Frank, even towards the end of Jim's life, had sort of was moving away from the Muppets. So it was a big deal when they got Oz back, for example. You know, when, when Jim was doing the, the pitch reel for the Jim Henson Hour, you know, it was great because he had Oz there. And, you know, and, and when they were all performing together, he remembered how fun that is. And he was like, we need to do more projects together. Um, you know, he did always say that he pictured he and Oz doing Ernie and Bird into their 80s, sitting on their, on their rocking chairs on the, in front of the old folks' home. But, you know, Oz had stepped away. Oz was starting to do things I think that Jim himself wanted to do. He was starting to direct films and films that didn't have Muppets in them and, you know, do these sort of black comedies and things like that. Um, and, he, and he was able to do that because Jim had sort of nurtured him up through the system. You know, Jim, Jim, was, Jim was his farm team in a sense. You know, he, Jim brought him up through uh, The Dark Crystal. You know, you could be my co-director. He actually told Oz, I think it'd be better, you know, if both of us did this together and sort of brought him along. And Oz really, you know, loved and respected that. And then, you know, when they're working Great Muppet, um, I'm sorry, Muppets Take Manhattan, you know, Oz writes the script and, and, directs, and directs that one. And Jim produces it and lets Oz direct. So, I, you know, he was really willing to sort of, you know, as, as Oz said at one point, he said, I spent, you know, 30 years in Jim's armpit, but also under his wing. And it let him, you know, he, he, tra- he trained him, taught him how to, how to direct and how to produce. And so he was ready to go out there and start making those movies. And that was really the, the direction he was moving in. So he would have, you know, I think he would have he kept coming back, especially if Jim and Jerry Joel are there to play with. Um, but I, I think him moving away from the Muppets, you know, even as early as the, you know, 86 or something is really not a surprise. Yeah, that, that definitely does make sense. So there's, there's an interesting thing in your, uh, in your book that I've kind of been wondering about and wanting to talk to you about. And when it comes to Jim Henson's passing, there seem to be basically 
two two camps in terms of how it's viewed. So mm -hmm. one is that Jim didn't act fast on his sickness because he thought it would pass soon, so it wasn't so it wouldn't be a problem for him. And the other is that he figured he was going to die. He'd kind of suspected this for a while, but he had embraced the idea, so it wouldn't be a problem for him. Now, you seem to be in the first camp, uh, whereas the book Street Gang sort of kind of suggests the latter in a way. So what do you make of all this? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody ever thinks that they're dying. Um, when I was uh, researching this book, I was in London in 2009, and I got swine flu <laughs> that summer. Remember how terrible that was raging through London? And, and I ended up with a terrible case of swine flu. And I was uh, you know, traveling with my wife, and she was at a conference, and I was sort of just like locked in this hotel room because I was just so miserable. And you know, it's not overly dramatic to say there were times I really thought I was going to die. I felt that awful, and I never get sick. But because I never get sick, I thought, okay, well, but I also have no reason to think that I'm, you know, deathly ill. So I'll just, you know, I'll ride this through and I'll get over it. And I did. And I really think that's what Jim thought was going to happen with him. I don't think he realized the severity of how sick he was. Um, you know, being sick for Jim was a huge inconvenience to him. You know, he didn't like to get sick. Alex Rockwell said he didn't have time for it. You know, Dave Goals was saying he was the Iron Man. He never got ill. It was a big deal to him. And it was a big enough deal, as I even point out in the book, that he would write it in his journal when he got sick. It really bugged him to be ill. Um, so, you know, I, I think this is a guy who was normally, who was always very healthy, never had any reason to suspect that he, you know, would be deathly ill. So I, so I don't buy that he was, you know, slowly, you know, preparing himself for death and, you know, writing the letters to his children, which he'd written while he was working on Labyrinth for crying out loud. I mean, it was like 1986 and, you know, he was in fine physical health. Um, you know, didn't know, you know, what Labyrinth was going to do. I, you know, the only reason he had, he wrote those letters is because that's the kind of forward thinking he would do actually. He was in a great place in his life at that point. Um, you know, he was he was uh, working on the Muppet. Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of the project. It was the one that the IBM chairman had said. You know, what if you could do an ideal project? What would it be? And he had the Muppets traveling around the world and exploring new cultures. And you know, he was in a very positive place. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, uh, Jim Henson's World of Puppetry. Is that it? No, no, no. This was a project that never materialized and never even got off the page. But it was the proposals very, very upbeat. And very positive, and you know, he wrote this when he was in Paris, and he was enjoying the hotel and the view, and he was saying, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking all about my life, and because this is, you know, the kind of thing Jim would do, he said, I'm thinking of life, and yeah, I'm also thinking of death, and you know, I'm. He, Jim wasn't scared of death, I guess you can say that, because you know, he he viewed it as a, a you know a transcendent state, as a place where all your friends who were you know have passed on, you get to see them, friends and family, and so you know. Jim wasn't scared of death in that sense, but as far as like preparing to die, no, I, I don't, I don't buy that at all. Hmm. Um, and you know, one of the common misconceptions was that you know he didn't go to the doctor because he was Christian Science, and I, I'm hoping the book busts that all open because to a to a person, everyone said absolutely that was not true. Right. And so by writing the comprehensive biography on Jim Henson, uh, for better or for worse, you've plunged into the online Muppet fan community in a way. And sure. I believe it was Brian Henson who once said, Muppet fans are sometimes really crazy people. <laughs> so uh, all, all fans are really crazy people. Though. This is true, <laughs> as I will find out when I go over to Free Comic Book Day. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, so what do you make of this crazy bunch of people? And do you think that the spirit and mindset of Jim Henson is apparent in the online Muppet fan community? 
Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think so. I mean, you know, I think what it, I think Jim's attitude um, is, you know, sort of teach his own on this, and he's willing to put the work out there. And if you respond positively and love it, great. If you don't, great. He did his best, <laughs> you know, which is what happened to him with things like, you know, the Jim Henson Hour and you know, the Cube, things like that. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. It's a matter of taste. And uh, you know, I'm I'm delighted if people love it. I I'm I'm thrilled if people don't. I go, hmm, geez, I'm I'm, uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you know, I was I did the best I could, and I was hoping you'd like it. So, um, yeah, I mean, to, for the most part, to, you know, the Muppet fans have been terrific. You know, some of them want to want to ask questions. Some of them want to debate things. Some of them want to fight about stuff. Others, you know, just think it's one. So, you know, it's as it is with anything. You know, I'm a I'm a Batman fan, and and I'm just apoplectic and beside myself with this Batman versus Superman stuff. I think it's going to be terrible, and you know, and I'm out there wringing my hands, and other people are like, it's going to be fantastic. You negative Nancy, what are you so worried about? So, you know, these these things happen. This is the way it works. Were you worried when you were writing the biography that you might offend somebody who maybe, you know, wasn't the nicest person to Jim that you would, you know, you'd have to write what happened between Jim and the Walt Disney Company? So did that scare you at all? Uh, no, you know, not not really. Um, you've, you know, you got to do the work. You got you got to if it's if it's there, good as long as you can back it up, um, you know, you go ahead and say it. You know, I, I came out of I came out of politics, so I do you know I do a, I do worry about you know how you politics something. You know, how are you going to put this out there so you're saying it? But you're not being, you know, offensive about it. You're just stating it as fact and then letting it be out there and let people, you know, take it and run. Um, so, you know, in some, there's some tough. There were some places in there. I know it was tough for the Hensons to to read. For example, um, they all knew about, you know, Jim's infidelity. Uh, Jane knew about it. Talked very openly about it. And um, so I think, you know, it was really interesting. As a, they're all individually telling me these stories about Jim and about and about his relationship with Jane and about his relationship with other women and about when he was dating Marianne after they you know, Jim and Jane were separated. And when, when they're telling it individually, it's one thing. When they finally saw the first draft, they were like, you know, oh, oh my God, they'd never seen all that together before. And hearing other people talk about it, um, you know, so it, it was a touchy issue. Um, but, you know, you put it in there and I, I really aggressively footnoted it. So there was never a moment where anyone would say, where did you get that? You know, where did where did that come from? You know, oh, that's interesting. I'd never heard that before. Well, it was all footnoted really aggressively so they could see that where all the sources were and who was saying this. And, you know, if someone said something, I could back it up by something somebody else had said. So, you know, it's, it's a fine line to walk, but you've got to be, you know, you've got to be true to your source. You've got to be true to your subject matter. And uh, and and still do that in a, a respectful, uh, you know, responsible way. And uh, and I think we, I think I did that in there. Yeah, and it all worked out well, making for a really cool and interesting book. Now, your website says that uh, Jim Henson the biography is hopefully coming to paperback in May of 2015. So hopefully, is the is that still <laughs> a hopefully thing? Well, I mean, the only reason it's hopeful is because I, I have to clear the images again. I'm not using anything new. Uh, it's all the same image you had. There will be no new photos or anything like that. But it's just the way these things work in publishing. You have to clear your images. Well, not always, but the Disney company that owns them up is they want me to, that they required me to clear them for the hardback and now for the paperback. Hmm. Uh, the same image. So I'm so we're in the process of doing that, and it just as you can imagine takes a long time sometimes. So so we're still hoping to stick the landing in May. So we'll see. Hmm. Have you noticed the uh, speaking of the photos in the book? Have you noticed that on the side of the book when you uh, have the cover on and you turn it upside down? The rooster and Janice put together make that angry monster face. Yeah, that really weird face. Yeah, I saw somebody say that on Twitter. In fact, I, that the person I think tweeted that originally, I think that's actually Lisa Henson's husband. Really? Because I had first seen it. I mean, I'd noticed it myself, but the first time I'd seen anyone else talk about it was with um, Sesame Street puppeteer Noel McNeil, who was actually oh, on the show not long ago. 
Oh, that's fine. Yeah, no, I had anyway. The first place I did see it was Twitter. I hadn't noticed that until I turned it upside down. Either I was trying to get the uh, the image um, sort of shuffled over or resized a little bit so the puppet Jim was right centered on the spine, um, but it, it it you just couldn't work it out so that then Jim on the back cover was centered as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so that I really wanted that Muppet Jim on the spine perfectly. He's kind of cut in half. He's sort of bisected on the cover, but on the spine. But but yeah, I had I hadn't noticed that until I saw it on Twitter, and I turned it over and I said, "Geez, I'll be." That was pretty cool, actually. Trivia. Yeah, but pretty cool. So we may have touched on this a little bit before, but how do you think Jim's passing shaped the way that people view uh, Jim's work and the Muppets? It's a big one, I know. Is it too vague? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, you know, in, in a way it's, I hate to say it this way. In a way, it almost, you know, it's sort of like when after the Beatles broke up, you know, it's it's like it's a moment in time you can't ever get again. And almost everything about that moment was perfect. You know, it's and it's you know when people talked about with the you know the Beatles getting back together in an anthology and doing songs and people were like, oh, God, if they what if they put out something that's going to suck now? You know, you don't want to ruin that legacy. Um, and I think with Jim, you know, I mean, he's got <laughs> he's got a pretty good track record. And so I, you know, I think that color sort of, you know, when as you're moving forward, they, the performers always told me they tried not to get into the mentality of what would Jim do, what would Jim think uh, on any project, but it, but they said it's almost impossible because you know you, you you would do a performance, you think, gee, I wonder if Jim would have laughed at that, you know, what would he, what would he have thought? How how maybe would he have asked me to change that, you know, because you know because he was Jim and he was really good at what he did, he was very supportive of them, so I think even losing sort of that safety net of Jim was tough on them as they were moving forward. Um, you know, but on the, on the other hand, he was, you know, even in his life as he was, as he was selling to Disney, there were a lot of people who thought he was willing and comfortable with just sort of stepping away from the Muppets, you know, handing it over to Muppet Generation 2.0 and letting, you know, maybe people like, I mean, you were still going to have the, you know, the old guard around, but, you know, starting to pass it off to people like Steve Whitmire and, and, uh, you know, Kevin Clash and sort of, you know, letting the new blood come in and develop, you know, start developing the new characters and moving them forward while he went off and did, you know, Dark Crystal 2 or something we haven't even thought of and, you know, and loved the technology so much that Lord knows what he would have done today with, you know, with green screen and CGI. And I mean, at, at, I always show when I do presentations, I show the opening credits of Labyrinth where you've got that sort of snow owl flying over, you know, the opening credits. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time anybody's done had done a realistic animal. They'd done dragons and spaceships, but this is the first time anybody tr- attempted to do anything that was a real animal. And in a way, Jim's almost like wasting it on the opening credits. Uh, you know, you've got this great image, like put it in the put it in the story. But you know, he, he just he loved the technology. He was willing to he was willing to even just use it in the opening credits, uh, yeah, almost like hidden in plain sight. So, I, you know, the idea of what would he be doing today with this stuff? Lord knows. I mean, probably thinking of something we haven't thought of. I find it fascinating then that. For Jim and Frank, it was clear that, for the most part, the characters were the most important thing. It was all about the characters. And yet, with a number of Jim Henson's productions, it seemed like he would occasionally make the mistake of celebrating and emphasizing the technology so much that the characters did not get enough of the focus. And do you think that that might have been part of the problem with films like uh, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and reaching the success that they could have had? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's more of a problem with Dark Crystal than it was Labyrinth. Labyrinth, he was sort of trying to correct those issues, um, and you know, you can debate now whether you think he did or not. You know, what I what I would say about those films is, is Jim was right about those films, but at the wrong time. Hmm. 
Um, but dark, you know, and, and they both have enormous followings and, you know, huge fans. And so it, it's funny when I, I was just talking to a group of, uh, like college students and it's like, there's blank faces a lot during Muppets, during dark crystal, during fraggles. And as soon as I say labyrinth, everyone goes, Ooh, you know, like everybody knows labyrinth, which is, you know, really interesting. And, and to me weird because that was sort of the tail end of Jim's stuff. But anyway, so it, I think the technology, um, got in the way in the, in dark crystal for the first one. And I think part of it is because it was all so new. He was still playing with it, and he loved the world building behind Dark Crystal. And they had done the, the sort of tech transfer, you know, with Lucasfilm when they were building Yoda and saw how to build some of these things. And, and you know, they knew they could do it right. As, as Frank Oz said about Yoda, by the time they got done with him, he was still the special effect. And, you know, the Lucasfilm, the, you know, the ILM people had made Yoda out of sort of the wrong material. He was rubber. He was hard to move. He was heavy. You know, he didn't have the kind of flexibility that, that the Henson Company would have put into it. Um, so I think they took a lot of those lessons that they'd learned in, in Empire Strikes Back and building Yoda and, and wanted to do it right in Dark Crystal. And, you know, really, again, really loved that technology and loved the, the exercise of hiding the performer. And, and uh, you know, even beyond that, Jim loved, the, uh, you know, thinking about how the world, how did it come together? If you need a chair, you can't grab a chair out of the prop shop. Um, so you've got to think about what kind of tree did this come from? What did that tree look like? If I cut it down, what does it look like across the grain? You know, Jim really thought these things out um, and just, you know, loved the world building in, in Dark Crystal. And I think, yeah, I think it got in the way uh, of, of the story. I, I, I don't even know if it got in the way. I, I think the story became secondary. Um, and you look at something, again, like the Jim Henson Hour, which sort of came out of uh, – he had a, a lead TV concept uh, that he'd started with very early on. That was a lot of it was about playing with the technology and, you know, and, you know, Jim loved chroma key for crying out loud, even the 60s, you know, when you see youth 68 with all that chroma key and he loved that kind of stuff. He loved the special effects. So something like even in the Jim Henson hour, it kind of got in the way there. He loved that technology and being able to have the view screens and things like that. Um, and the characters didn't come together. And, and, you know, as we said, and, and you're right, the characters what mattered the most. And when he was, when he got sort of bogged down, in the in the in the gadgetry, it didn't always translate into great characters for him. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that is, it's pretty tough. It may be too difficult. Okay. Are are you ready for this? Sure. Uh, have you braced yourself? I'm braced. Who's your favorite Muppet? <laughs> you know. It, it, it's funny because uh, when it started, I would my my answer would have been different than after I got into it. So I, I always have to sort of preface it with that. Um, the Muppet I fell in love with as I was writing this is Rolf. Uh, initially going into it, I would have probably said Ernie and Bert um, because I'm a I'm a Sesame Street kid, and I think ultimately that still my heart is still with Ernie and Bert. Um, but I really fell in love with Rolf, and he's so important in Jim's story. And you watch uh, the old clips of Jimmy Dean with Rolf, and it's I mean it is magic watching Jim and Frank Oz work Rolf. Uh, you know, it's, it's Oz's first job. Uh, he's 19 years old, just came out of high school in California. He's hired to right hand for Rolf and uh, sort of intuitively knew how to do it. You watch, you watch the footage of it, and it's, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And you have to remember, too, I would say it, that it was them flying without a net um, because they're doing this essentially live. They were taping Jimmy Dean, but for the most part, the segments are done all in one take. And, you know, it's Jim and Oz crouched behind this wall for seven minutes or so doing Rolf and interacting with Jimmy Dean and, you know, reading off the script between it and ad-libbing when they can. And, and, uh, and, it's, and it's so wonderful and it's so convincing. And Jimmy Dean believes in Rolf absolutely. 
Uh, it's just it's a it's a really wonderful character. So that you know, Rolf is the one I really came to uh, appreciate and, and really fell in love with as I was as I was working it. <clears throat> so even today, I think if you you know asking me now post post that project, my favorite is Rolf. Going into it again, I was a Sesame Street kid. I always love Ernie and Bert, and then I think <laughs> behind Rolf, if I had to pick another one. It would actually probably be Guy Smiley. I love Guy Smiley. No character makes me laugh harder than Guy Smiley. Like, you know, he's sort of a really amped up version of Jim's personality. Uh, you know, sort of arms flailing Kermit-like and just everything you're doing is the greatest thing ever. And he's really on your side and he's pulling for you. I mean, that's, that's Jim. And that, that character makes me laugh out loud. Yeah, you have some really good choices, my friend. <laughs> I don't think that it's fair to lump Ernie and Bert together as one character. That's kind of cheating. It Just is a cheating. little bit. I deduct one point, but on the whole, yeah, you win. Ralph well, is a you, favorite of mine. Well, you know, you can't you can't have Abbott without Costello. So you know, and you can't have Laurel without Hardy. They're sort of you know they're all one word lowercase. Hmm, that's a very fascinating way of looking at it, looking at it. Maybe it wasn't unfair to lump <laughs> together Ernie and Bert for the. Uh, First Muppet Madness tournament in which they just killed it. Ah, have you seen any of those? Any of those? I, I, was, I was again. I was following that on Twitter. Mm, yeah, the Muppet Madness tournament was really fun this year. It was. It was, and some of them were surprising. Yeah, I had a fun time co-hosting that with Steve. <laughs> in closing, why don't you tell the listeners at home what it is that you're working on right now? Right now, I am uh, deep into writing about George Lucas, and so as we the, speak, like as we speak, I right this right. very second, you've been <clears> typing <throat> this whole time. It's it's the mess on my desk right now that I've pushed to the side so I can talk to you. Um, uh, I have written nearly sixty thousand words, so it's already way too long because I haven't even gotten to Star Wars yet. So. <laughs> Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's the kind of research I love, you know, it's, it's just, I love going through sources and tons of, you know, primary material and, and interviews done at, at the time rather than stuff done in hindsight. And, um, you know, I, I'd come out of, uh, Congress, I was a congressional staffer for years and, you know, a big part of your job is when you are researching something, you pull from as many sources as you can. You talk to people, you pull articles, you pull interviews and put it together and you advise your member based on, you know, all these disparate sources. And this is, in that regard, a dream come true for me because I love that kind of deep drill research and there's just so much fun stuff out there that uh, hasn't been put together before. So, you know, you can read about how you make, you know, making a Star Wars, the making of Indiana Jones, but it hasn't all been put together in one place. Uh, and he hasn't been done since um, there was one book that came out in the night, but it came out before he directed the next three movies. So he hasn't been done in a long time. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I'm hoping it's very thorough. Um, you know, every day I print out new stories on what he's doing now. So when I get to that point, I've got all, you know the latest and greatest information on that. So um, if I can stick the landing on that, you should have that uh, sometime uh, early or mid next year. That sounds awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. Should be fun. Great. Well, I am so glad that you wrote a biography on Jim Henson so that I didn't have to. That's a, <laughs> that's a big thing off of my to-do list because we definitely did need one. Yes, so, we do. Thank you very much for uh, writing such a good book, and thank you so much for being here and talking to me today. That's been my pleasure, J.D. Thank you. What are you doing with a piano in the bathroom? Well, Bert, I heard you singing in the tubby there. Yeah? And so I thought I would just come in and sing along. I don't want you to sing along. I but, want you to get out. But, you know, everybody sounds better singing in the bathroom, you know? I don't want the piano in here, Ernie. Well, sure, Bert. What's a sing-along without a piano? It's me. That's what it is. Alone. Listen to that, Bert. Stop that playing. Doesn't that sound Stop nice? Stop it right now. Doesn't it just make you want to sing along? Makes me want to see you out of here. No, Bert. Come listen. on. Gee, Bert. What? 
It's so much fun. No, it's not. I know you'll like it. I won't like it. Once you've begun. I won't begin. Ernie, I've got to wash my hair. I've got to scrub my toes. Weebert could have a ball. No way. If I could get you to sing at all. No. I refuse to sing along. I won't. But Bert. So please don't ask me if I want to, cause I don't. Pretty please. Although for you, I would do almost anything. Really? Along is one way which I do not want to sing. But listen. Oh, buddy, it will make you happy when you start to sing a snappy little number that will bounce you right along. No. Like Farmer in the Dell or Old MacDonald had a farmer, maybe what's the name of that song? No. So if you use a lot of voice, you'll love it that you've got a voice, and even if the notes you sing are wrong, Ernie. you'll do a favor for us if you lift your voice in chorus for a swinging sing-along song. It I will make you happy when you start to sing a snappy little number that will bounce you right along. So please don't like Farmer in the Dollar or McDonald had a farmer, maybe what's the name of that song? So if you use a lot of voice, you'll love it that you've got a voice, and even if the notes you sing are wrong, you'll do a favor for us if you lift your voice and chorus for a swinging sing-along song. Please, Bert. What? You'll like it too. No, I won't. We'll sing together. <laughs> Just me and you. No, I refuse to sing along. That's it. And in the bathtub, it's ridiculous. I quit. That's that. That's that. Gee, Bert, that was wonderful. Oh, Ernie, come on, I get out of here. Just take your piano. That is one of my favorite Ernie and Bert tunes, and you can be sure to hear more about Ernie and Bert over the next few days as we celebrate 10 days of Jim and Frank at MubbaDub.com. It was great getting to kick off the event with Brian, and I think that made for a really fun way to celebrate Henson Memorial Day. If you want to keep the celebration of Jim's work going, be sure to keep an eye on what we're doing with 10 days of Jim and Frank, and if you've got any ideas for other fun things we can be doing to celebrate during this occasion, please send those ideas to me, M-E, at MuppetHub.com. Our Facebook page is MuppetHub.com slash Facebook, or alternatively, you can go to Facebook.com slash JD11PC. The Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Reddit usernames are also JD11PC. That's JD11PC. And you can follow Brian J. Jones on Twitter, at Brian J. Jones, no caps, no spaces. Happy Henson Memorial Day, everyone. Stay silly, and until next time, waka waka, wubba wubba, and weeba weeba. Everybody ends, uh, when I do stuff, they all bring in Menomina for some reason. People love that one. I will find the most obscure Jim Henson and Frank Oz song. <laughs>this book might have had more impact on the Muppet Wiki and on the way people see Jim Henson than any other work of media. And I've known, uh, I mean, man, I'm stumbling today. It's okay, it's early. 11.03? That's still early on the weekend. This is true. This is true. <laughs> Where are you, by the way? Um, I am in Bel Air, Maryland. Oh, God, I didn't know you were that close. Yeah, I did notice that we're both Marylanders. Jeez. So, yeah, um... And then, because of that, I occasionally will make trips up to New York for Muppety things. Yeah, that's great. Things yeah, like I, that. I had no idea you were a, a Merlander. Merlander? Yeah. What's really funny is around here, uh, when uh, people refer to Bel Air as Blair, 
Blair. <laughs> or to Haber de Grace as Haber de Grace, or it's... <laughs> yeah, I grew, I grew up in New Mexico, and there's a town named after the writer Thoreau, but out there, everybody calls it Thru. <laughs> that's great. And all that's going to be edited out unless... That's right. None of this will be... This is an Easter egg. Unless I put it after the uh, music at the end is like a little bloopers thing, <laughs> if that's okay. I don't care if I was me.